You're listening to the official Travel Through History podcast. We're the producers. I'm Joe. And I'm John. If you haven't heard our story yet, go back to the first episode. We kind of give you a little breakdown of how this all started. In the meantime, the voice of the show, Jillian, will take you to our next destination. Take it away, Jillian. Looking for a little R&R? That's rest and relaxation for the layman. How about visiting some of the U.S.'s best beaches while watching the sunset over the ocean? Try doing that east of the Mississippi. There aren't too many places in the world that boast year-round sunshine, but St. Petersburg is one of them, with an average of about 360 days a year. Combine St. Pete with its neighbors Clearwater and Tampa, and you've got a world-class vacation destination. But St. Petersburg is more than just beaches and sunshine. It's a city of fascinating stories, from innovations in aviation to cultural and artistic wonders, not found anywhere else. Ever had a dream that was totally unreal? Imagine if you put it all on canvas. That's the essence of a Salvador Dali painting. His famous surrealist style paintings and even more famous mustache will definitely inspire you to be yourself. Have you ever heard of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? Turns out Tampa Bay is an important trade harbor for the U.S. and it needs to be protected from Pirates of the Caribbean. We'll check out Fort DeSoto for a look at the really big cannons needed to secure the bay. Sponges, tiny multicellular organisms of the sea. Why am I telling you this? Because Tarpon Springs, a Greek community on the Gulf Coast, built sponge diving into an actual thriving economy. Finally, we'll visit the St. Pete History Museum and learn about the first ever commercial airline flight in the world from St. Pete to Tampa. Probably still had to connect through Atlanta. So prepare to soak up the rays in beautiful St. Petersburg, Florida on today's Travel Through History. The city of St. Petersburg is the fourth largest city in the state of Florida and is a popular vacation destination for American and foreign tourists. Its popularity is due in part to its white sandy beaches and the average 360 plus days of sunshine each year. Hi, my name is David Downing. I'm the deputy director for Visit St. Pete Clearwater. St. Petersburg, Florida is on the west coast of Florida. It's on the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, we're about 90 minutes from Orlando, from Mickey Mouse, about three and a half from uh, the Miami-Fort Lauderdale area. It's also interesting that this is the number one tourist destination on the Gulf of Mexico in the United States. There's nowhere anywhere in the Gulf that gets more visitation than this area. About one million residents over the entire county, we welcome about 14 million people a year. So, Tourism is very important and protecting our natural environment is also very important for the same reason. Pinellas County, where we're sitting in right now, is the most densely populated county in Florida. We have more people per square mile here than Miami. But even when you have that, you have open spaces. The vibe is very sophisticated but laid back at the same time. People often compare it to like the south of France. Um, there is a ribbon of greenery that you see behind me. They don't allow any development on the water itself. So there's this beautiful park system that runs the entire length of the city. It gives it a very laid back feel, a very kind of southern Mediterranean feel. It's an amazing city. It's a beautiful city. Um, it's a city with a lot of uh, international flavor because of the people that come here and also because of the arts. We, we have some absolutely amazing art 
museums and uh, cultural destinations. People always think of beaches when they think of St. Petersburg, Florida, and they should. Uh, the entire St. Pete Clearwater area is some of the best beaches in the world. But the surprise is the depth of culture. When you consider the first ever scheduled air service was here between St. Pete and Tampa. Uh, when you think that we have the Guinness records for most consecutive sunny days. When you think that we're the birthplace of spring training, we're the birthplace of Wikipedia. All these threads that kind of run through the fabric of St. Petersburg, I think surprise people. In 1819, Spain ceded Florida to the United States. Then in 1845, Florida became the 27th state to join the United States of America. During this time, Florida became the next frontier to conquer. I'm James Parrish, Director of Marketing and Events for the St. Petersburg Museum of History here in St. Petersburg, Florida. For the past 90 years, the museum has been collecting and preserving the history, talking about everything from the railroad that brought so many people here and really turned us into the town that we are today. Focusing a lot on tourism as St. Petersburg and Florida as a whole are really big into that industry. And then generally telling how all the little different stories have come together to make an amazing city to live in and to visit. Travel and trade to this new settlement was difficult in the 1880s. To fix this problem, John C. Williams, who owned a majority of land in the area, transferred some of his land holdings to Peter Demins. In exchange, Demins extended his Orange Belt Railroad from Sanford, Florida to Tarpon Springs, and then south along the Gulf Coast to Williams Settlement. As part of the deal, Williams also agreed to let the railway man name the settlement. Demins called it St. Petersburg after his Russian birthplace. The deal opened interstate trade with St. Petersburg and allowed the small town to grow. However, trade wasn't the only byproduct of the new railroad. They soon learned that tourism would be a surprising key to economic success in the Bay Area. Starting in the 20s, St. Pete in Florida saw a major boom in, in the tourist industry as uh, St. Pete opened its first luxury hotel, the Vinoy. The Women's League in the turn of the century all the way through the 1920s really helped turn St. Pete into the tourist town that it is today. They raised money to dredge up land to create the waterfront park that actually leads onto the pier, which is definitely a focal point here in St. Petersburg and has uh, really been an icon for St. Pete tourism. At 10 a.m. on January 1st, 1914, the first scheduled commercial flight took off from the water near the city of St. Petersburg's Bayfront. The flight only took about 20 minutes to go from St. Pete to Tampa, but it made world history as the first scheduled commercial flight, ushering in a new era of travel. The pilot of the Benoit 14 flying boat was Tony Janus, who went on to become an aviation legend. The Tony Janus Award is presented annually in his honor for outstanding achievement in the airline industry. This room is actually a special exhibit on the Florida Highwaymen. A group of black painters in the 1950s learned how to paint landscapes, specifically Florida landscapes, and they loved to paint what Florida used to look like before it became the tourist place that it is today. With very limited to no training, these uh, black artists having a hard time living in Jim Crow law, Florida, would paint these master works of art. They couldn't afford all of the different uh, materials that everybody could. So rather than 
painting on canvas, they would paint on gypsum board or drywall. And uh, it was known that they would line up a number of them all together and paint one huge scene, cut it up, and then not even letting them dry, throw them in the back of the car and head down the street to hopefully sell a few. And many times simply walking down A1A would walk into any business, walk up to a tourist in a hotel and just ask them, would you like to buy this beautiful artwork that I created? And they would have to sell them for low to no cost, but they made a living on it. Many of them still do it today. Coming up, we'll see how St. Petersburg prevented naval attacks by disguising some major artillery with part of the beach. Then we'll see how Tarpon Springs turned sponges into a multi-million dollar industry. Hey, it's John and Joe, the producers of Travel Through History. The only way we can affordably produce these shows is with an invitation from our tourism board partners. They help show us around and get us where we need to be to tell the story. You know, when you think St. Petersburg, Florida, you don't really think rich history, but uh, that's actually untrue. Between the Tony Janus uh, first commercial flight that was out of St. Pete and the Dolly Museum, uh, as well as some great uh, Florida original artwork that you can see at the St. Pete History Museum, there's really a lot to do in St. Petersburg. If you're looking to visit, I might suggest visiting their website. It's www.visitstpeteclearwater.com. Visit their site to learn more about the city's attractions and start planning a trip. Back to the show. Just off the southernmost tip of Pinellas County lies a military fort that helped protect St. Petersburg and Tampa from naval attacks during the Spanish-American War. But don't expect to find this fort by walking down the beach. There are no giant stone walls or large gun turrets here. Fort DeSoto was built to be hidden. Hi, my name is Michael Agliano, Chief Ranger at Fort DeSoto Park in Pinellas County, Florida. The fort from the beach side, you can't really tell. It looks like a hill covered with vegetation. It's built inside of a big berm, and it was designed that way to remain invisible to any ships that happened to pass. Back in 1898, there was some trouble down in the Caribbean. Spanish-American War was happening, and they felt the need to fortify the, the channel out here that connects Gulf of Mexico with Tampa Bay. There's another fort out on an island out in the channel there. It's Fort Dade, and between the two of them, they've served as defense to the channel of Tampa Bay. The plan was that for any ship that passed through and was hostile between the mortars here and the gun batteries over at Fort Dade, they could take it out before it entered um, Tampa Bay. But how could any heavy artillery be effective from inside a hidden fort? The guns would actually tilt upward at an angle that would shoot the projectile, a 12-inch projectile, over the wall, kind of like shooting a, an army mortar. You know, it's a lob shot, but you can be pretty accurate with it. The fort was built, the construction started in 1898. It was, army, it was occupied by the Army until the mid-1920s when it was abandoned because it was no longer a use for it. The fort here never really fired a shot in anger. There was some target practice, but never, never saw any hostile action. The park property, though, was used again by the federal government as a bombing range during World War II. Today, visitors can walk the grounds of Fort DeSoto and see inside this hidden treasure. But there's so much more that Fort DeSoto Park has to offer. We have one of the largest boat ramps in the southeast, located at the entrance of the park. We have a campground that has 243 campsites in it. That um, Most of those campsites are on the water. People can bring their boats and camp at the same time. 
We have the fort as an attraction and we have six and a half miles of coastline. This is one of the few beaches in Pinellas County where you can look down the coast and not see any hotels or condominiums. It is completely under, undeveloped as it was uh, when the park was established in 1963. It's just a, a neat place to come. It's paradise. From the southernmost tip of Pinellas County, we're going to travel due north to a city that has the largest percentage of Greek Americans in the United States. It's rich in Greek heritage, it has fantastic Greek food, but its real claim to fame? Well, that would be sponges. My name is George Belares. My job is I'm a captain of the sponge boat and have been for the last 70 years. When I was a kid, there were 180 boats here, anchored over here in this little harbor here. In those years, there was nothing else to do. And diving for sponge was the most lucrative job. In fact, whoever worked at Tarpon Springs in the early years were the wealthiest people in the southeastern part of the United States. Sponge diving can be traced all the way back to ancient Greece. Throughout the centuries, Greek and other European societies used sponges for many things, including portable drinking utensils and padding for helmets. They were a pretty hot commodity. Fast forward to the early 20th century and a man by the name of John Kukoris noticed that the Gulf Coast, particularly near the city of Tarpon Springs, was ripe with sponges. After a failed attempt to utilize a local diving crew, he decided to recruit experienced sponge divers from Greece. And within a few short years, he created a multi-million dollar industry that revolved entirely around sponges. There's two methods of gathering sponge. One is diving, and the other is a hook boat. The hook boat is one man rows, the other looks through a glass bottom bucket. When they spot the sponge, they hook it and bring it up. It's a good method. The only problem is you can't work any deeper effectively than 15 to 20 feet. So that means we left all the Gulf of Mexico untried. To venture deeper into the Gulf of Mexico, divers would wear primitive wetsuits and don giant helmets with hoses attached that allowed them to breathe underwater. The name of the game is you have a limited time on the bottom, so you want to get as much out of it when you go down. You're down there to make a living, not to, uh, you know, for pleasure. And you want every second to count. It's a tough job. We used to lose, when we had a full fleet, we used to lose an average from seven to 10 men a year, mostly from the bins. Decompression sickness, otherwise known as the bends, is caused by the formation of nitrogen bubbles in the blood. This usually happens when a diver is at a great depth for a long time, then returns to the surface without properly decompressing. Nitrogen bubbles get into your bloodstream, and if they go to the brain, you're dead. If they go to your back, your legs will twist like this, and you sort of shuffle. You can't walk, you're crippled for the rest of your life. When you go on the bottom, though, you walk again normal. So most of your crippled divers were more anxious to go out than you were. Tarpon Springs has become more of a tourist attraction over the past 30 years, attracting millions of visitors each year. But don't let that fool you. There is still a demand for natural sponges. The tourist industry gives you about 50, 53 million dollars a year. The sponge industry, about 14 to 15 million dollars a year. And so it's, uh, Tarpon Springs is quite fortunate. We have a tourist industry without design. Nobody sat down and said, well, this is what we're going to do. The best thing about Tarpon Springs, everything is for real. It's not a bunch of baloney. After the break, we'll explore the art, 
and the mind of one of the most well-known painters of all time. We visit the awe-inspiring work of Salvador Dali in just three minutes. Stay with us. Hey everybody, it's Joe and John, the producers of Travel Through History here. And one thing I wanted to mention to you guys was the only way that we're able to even make programming like this is through a charity. And our charity is called the Watch and Learn Foundation, and you can visit it by going to watchandlearn.org. What Joe really means is that we have no idea how to sell the show. And although we've tried in the last four years, it, we haven't been successful at it. We can shoot, write, produce, edit. What else do we do? Pretty much everything. Pretty much everything. Everything but, that... But we can't sell. Yeah. Yep, so if, you, if you're actually somebody listening that can help us sell the show, please call us, send us an email, anything, because we really want to keep doing more of these, and we actually like to pay our bills. But in the meantime, you can go to watchandlearn.org and make a donation. That's right. That's www.watchandlearn.org, and donate and keep shows like Travel Through History and other educational shows on the air. Our next location is rather surreal, but that was the intention. You have to come up with something unique to house the artwork of one of the most infamous painters of the 20th century. Hi, I'm Kathy White. I'm the deputy director of the Dali Museum in St. Petersburg, Florida. Salvador Dali was a painter of the last century who was very influential in an area called surrealism. He had this personality that was larger than just the sum of his, his paintings. Just a very fertile imagination and also was a celebrity. He knew how to market himself through venues such as television. He worked in Hollywood. He worked with Disney, the Marx Brothers. He hung out with people like Alice Cooper. And he would walk down the streets of New York with uh, an ocelot or an anteater. So he did kind of publicity stunts. The artwork on display in the museum started in the early 1940s as a private collection of Reynolds and Eleanor Morse. The Morses were fascinated with Dali's work and soon became lifelong collectors and good friends with Dali and his wife Gala. In 1982, their collection was put on permanent display in St. Petersburg, Florida. On January 11, 2011, at 11 a.m., the collection moved to a more storm-secure building on the St. Petersburg waterfront. 1, 11, 11 at 11 a.m. A very Dali-esque grand opening. This collection is completely representative of his entire career. Dali's life's work is on display at the museum, from his earliest work as a teenager all the way through his giant masterworks that he completed near the end of his life. However, it's Dali's work in surrealism that made him a legend. And this is where you have images of melting clocks and eggs that are dripping and um, figures with holes in their back and crutches and, and, and all these kind of symbols that are really interesting for, for individuals and especially for kids when they come here because they look for these, these recurring images in Dali's work. The Dali Museum has seven of his 18 original masterworks, the most of any museum in the world. These paintings are rich in symbolism and optical illusions and tell a multi-layered visual story something that Dali has mastered throughout his life. Behind me is the painting, The Hallucinogenic Toreador, which was painted in 1969. Actually took about a year uh, in total to finish this painting. Its inspiration was the Venus de Milo statue. He saw a box of pencils that had this image on it, the Venus de Milo, and, and in the shadows, he saw the face of a Toreador, a bullfighter. The image of the Torador can be found in the negative space created by the figures of the Venus de Milo. 
The green cloth in the central figure creates the necktie of the Torador, and as you move up, you will notice his chin, nose, and eye, which is shedding a tear for the bull, located towards the bottom of the work. This is a commentary on Gala's hatred for bullfighting. Gala was Dali's wife and the inspiration for many of his paintings. This painting is another large canvas, the masterwork. It's called Galaxy Dalisi Desoxy Ribonucleic Acid, which is a combination of Dali's name, Dali, Gala, his wife, and the DNA molecule. Dali was fascinated by science. It sparked a creativity in him. In this work, Dali tips his hat to Crick and Watson, the team that discovered the DNA molecule, represented by the intertwined men in battle on the right. Dali's masterworks may be difficult to comprehend without being able to study them closely, so we suggest that you take a tour with one of the docents at the museum. The stories come to life right before your eyes. Dali is a very uh, engaging artist, and he is so much fun um, for people who don't know art, who are not uh, art aficionados because his work is, is interesting. You, you want to know, what, what is it? What, what does that mean? What does this painting mean? I really think that um, the idea of a museum, it can be intimidating for people, but the idea of Dali and his ideas and the kind of craziness that people associate with him is just interesting enough that they come in the door and then they're converted, that this is really, really fun. This is, art is, can be great fun and interesting. Think you know more about St. Pete history than we do? Prove it! Share anything we missed or your thoughts on the city on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash travel through history. We also update our site weekly to give you even more info on the cities we visit. The Sunshine City St. Petersburg is starting to become a major competitor among the Sunshine State's all-star lineup of great destinations. Its beautiful beaches, weather, dining, quaint architectural style, and fascinating history have put it on the map, and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Join us again next week for another episode of Travel Through History. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening to Travel Through History. Don't forget to visit the website to learn more about the places we visited and some quick history. That's www.travelthroughhistory.tv.